Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. I have another fantastic conversation with a great founder for you today. Yotam Segev is the CEO and co-founder at Sierra, which is a data security company who's raised over 160 million from investors like Excel, Sequoia, CyberStarts, and Redpoint. Yotam started the cloud security division of the IDF, so we covered how this early technical and leadership experience really prepared him to co-found Sierra. Now, before I hand it over to Yotam and get into the conversation, a quick shout out from the sponsor of today's show. There's nothing worse than relying on a legacy SIM that your security team has outgrown, especially when it impacts your ability to detect real incidents. Hunter's SOC platform offers built-in, always up-to-date detection rules and automatic correlation that allow SOC analysts to focus on high-value tasks that impact your organization. It's time to move to a platform that reduces risk, complexity, and cost for the SOC. Visit hunters.security to learn how you can move beyond SIM. Now, without further ado, I'm excited to hand it over to Yotam Segev. Well, the party is off to a good start. Yotam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me, Joy. Yeah, of course. No, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to, to talk with me today. So I know there's a lot for us to talk about, um, but maybe as a way just to set a little bit of context, I'd love just to get to know you a little bit better. So could you tell me a little bit more just about sort of yourself, your background, and maybe how you found your way into the world of, of cybersecurity? Of course. So cybersecurity has been my personal passion uh, for over 15 years now. Uh, like many of us, I started by hacking uh, the video games I was playing, uh, taking uh, cheat codes to the next level and seeing uh, what, what we can change on the back end of the game uh, and how we can alter it. And uh, it became a profession uh, as part of my military service in the Israeli intelligence. Uh, I met my co-founder and our VP of engineering, our first team leader in the engineering department as part of the Talpiot program which is Israel's Elite Technological Leadership Academy. And we were the cybersecurity generation. So they shipped half of us uh, after the extensive uh, four-year training program uh, to, to work in cybersecurity. And that's what we did for uh, the better part of the last decade. Uh, and then it became uh, more than a hobby. It became a profession and a passion. And I think that, you know, many people look at today and feel like it's the golden age of cyber. Uh, but I think that it's only the beginning. I think we're going to see this industry and these challenges continue to evolve as they're tied so intimately to the changes in our technology and our IT stack. And so I think that for cyber, it's only the beginning. It's still the, the early chapters of the story. Uh, and I'm very excited about what we, we all have to look forward to uh, accomplishing over the next few decades. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to dig into that point, but before we do, I'm always curious, you know, I, I speak with a lot of founders and CEOs like yourself, um, a lot of whom come from uh, Unit 8200, or more generally, just sort of the Israeli sort of military background, and even, you know, outside of cybersecurity, right, there's so much strong technology talent. The product we're using right now at right, Riverside is, a, is an Israeli company. So I'm always curious just to ask, 
sort of, you know, maybe I'd love to know sort of your point of view on why that is. Like, why is the Israeli military so strong at producing such strong, not just technical talent, but sort of leadership, entrepreneurial talent as well? So I think at the heart of it, necessity is the mother of all innovation. Uh, the question is, how much do you need it? How much, uh, how much do you depend on it? And Israel is a very small uh, nation uh, that doesn't have the friendliest neighborhood uh, around it and has to deal with a lot of security challenges, some of them uh, physical, some of them uh, cyber. I think that the drive to protect uh, your country, the drive to protect your, uh, your family, uh, your nation, has been a huge uh, accelerator for our uh, personal career path uh, mm-hmm. because it, it generates a level of dedication and commitment that isn't uh, so easy to come by. And yeah. I think that the opportunities that we were offered at a very young age uh, to lead uh, people and to lead uh, complex uh, projects and initiatives uh, for the security industry uh, really allowed us to to gather a lot of uh, capabilities, a lot of skills, a lot of experience, uh, perhaps faster than in other places. Yeah. This is probably going to be tricky to to answer and, and maybe pinpoint into maybe a, a, a few bullet points. But I'm curious, just as you, re- as you kind of reflect on uh, your time in the IDF, but also in the, the Talpiat Leadership Academy, what are sort of the, maybe a couple of, of, lessons you learned or experiences you had that you sort of remind yourself of now that you're, you know, a CEO and, and an entrepreneur? So I think that Talpiot is a very special place in this regard. Uh, one of the mantras of the program is to take uh, young adults and bring back that naive way of thinking that we have as young children, where we question mm. everything, Right. My son is two and a half years old. His favorite word is why. Why is this like that? Why is that like that? Why? Uh, he, he doesn't take anything uh, for granted. Why do we open uh, the faucet the way we do? Why, why do we open the fridge the way we do? Why do we need to keep the milk in the fridge? All of these, all of these things have to be questioned. Uh, and for children, it comes from a place of learning the world, experiencing the world, a very naive outlook. Uh, but in Telpiot, we go back to that way of thinking from a place of change, from a place of leadership. Why is this the way we're protecting data? Why are, are enterprises unable uh, uh, to deal with these challenges? Why is this the way that things operate? And how can we uh, find ways to change it through technology, through people, and through processes? And that's the strength and the uniqueness of the program and its responsibility within uh, the Israeli defense sector is to really challenge the status quo in many technological uh, areas and bring about change, change in very complex topics that require a a lot of effort and a lot of technology and a lot of complicated processes across a huge organization like the military. Yeah. Now, I can imagine that being... Uh, an inc- incredibly important lesson to learn, right? It's okay. it's how do you reinforce that constant curiosity and, and questioning of the status quo, quo and like the critical thinking that's required 
uh, that two-year-olds are so good at demonstrating, right? Of just asking why about anything you see. Um, that does spark another question, um, maybe about mistakes that you see early leaders or first-time leaders make. So whether it's from, you know, what you experienced in uh, the IDF or in your, uh, you know, professional experience, um, more in a commercial setting after the fact, what are some mistakes that you've, either you made personally or you, you have seen other young leaders make the first time they're in a, a position of responsibility? So I'll share a story, a lesson that my, my father uh, taught me mm-hmm. uh, when I was uh, in my first uh, leadership position in the military, running a, a team uh, of cyber operators uh, for the first time. And uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. So my, my only uh, consolence, my only condolence was to work really hard, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's what you do when, when you don't know the way to success. At least you work really hard and you know you gave it everything you had. Yeah, uh, so make, make I would, I would literally... With, with muscle, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and make sure, make, yeah. Sure that, uh, make sure that at the very least you gave it everything you had. Right. Uh, so I would work extremely long days, 15 hours, 16 hours uh, a day in the base uh, on a regular basis. And one of those, uh, one of those days, at the end of the day, my, my dad was in town. Uh, so I, I get out of the base. Uh, it's pretty late at night. It was like 9.30. And I go see him uh, for, uh, for a beer. And I get there and I'm still wearing uh, like my uniform. And I fall asleep on the table. You know, like I literally <laughs> put my head down on the, on the table and I fall asleep. And he wakes me up after a few minutes and he asks me, Yotam, how many soldiers do you have? I told him I have eight. And he said, are they, do they look like that right now? Or <laughs> do they also work that hard? And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> like, so you didn't understand your job. Like, it's very nice that you can work hard, but your job is to motivate people, to encourage people, and to get your organization, whether it's eight people, 80 people, 800 people, or 80,000 people, your, your job is to get them to feel that level of determi- of dedication to the to the mission, to feel that commitment, and and to want to give it everything they have, in order to make it successful. So I think that one of the mistakes uh, of early leadership that I've experienced myself, and I think many others experience as well, is tr- trying to carry everything on on your own two shoulders, and not yeah. being able to really share the responsibility, but also share the the privileges of success and uh, the feeling of I can make uh, I can make this uh, a, a huge success with the people that you that you lead and manage. And how did you correct that? Like how how did you maybe you know relinquish a little bit of control, but then sort of trust the team to you know take on more responsibility? Maybe. Yeah. So I think for me it was about giving the people the mission letting them own the mission and uh, turning my job into a support function. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it doesn't mean that I'm not heavily involved. It just means that it's theirs. And I'm here to support them, to help them, to assist them uh, in whatever way uh, they want and in whatever way would be meaningful for them. But it's still their mission. Even, uh, even if I'm, the, I'm their manager or I'm their leader in that situation, uh, and I want to see them 
take it as if, they, as if they're alone in the world and lean on me as much as, uh, as required. Yeah, got it. Okay. And now I'm curious to understand sort of maybe the, the turning point for sort of the early experience in the IDF to ultimately la- uh, launching Sierra. So how did you sort of come to actually get Sierra off the ground? I think for us, like the, the turning point from uh, the government service uh, to the, the private sector was really about scale, about the opportunity to do things uh, at a scale that the private sector can, uh, can afford you, uh, but the government sector cannot. So in our last position at the IDF, Tamar, my co-founder and me, we had an amazing opportunity to build a new business unit from scratch within the agency, within the confines of the, the security work we were doing there. And it was a huge success. It was going amazingly well, and we wanted to grow it. Uh, but they told us, we can't grow it. It's government here. These are the people you have. This is the budget you have. This is mm. the, <laughs> these are the resources available. Just uh, continue. Yeah. And, uh, and we had the hunger to do, to do something bigger. Uh, than, than what was possible there. Uh, and when we, when we wrapped up our service, when we completed our service and went into uh, Sierra, our aspirations were to build something very big, very meaningful, that will have an impact on the, the entire industry. Uh, and, and that's what we're working towards today uh, with the company to really build an important company in data security. Important to who? Important to what? Important to our customers, important to the enterprises uh, that are leveraging our software and working with us and partnering with us, important to the security of our society. And I know the business has grown very quickly, right? It's only been been around for what three, three, four years, if that. Um, and you know, the the success sort of from the outside in has been very, very, very strong, very high. Um, I'm curious, just as you sort of reflect on the experience with Sierra thus far, what have been sort of some like critical inflection periods or moments that say, all right, those have been, you know, the pivotal points of, of the growth of the business so far? I think that for us, when you're a startup, you only have so many resources. And mm-hmm. the, the right thing to do is to build a, a product that is relatively small and very deep. Right? That's, that's the classic tip anybody uh, will give you in company building. Right? Uh, do something extremely well. Uh, and that's what we did when we started. We did something extremely well. Uh, but for security practitioners, for CISOs, uh, for our customers, their whole body is hurting. Everything is pain. And if you come and you tell them, just take this magic pill, it's free. You don't even need to pay me. Take this magic pill and all of the pain in your left index finger is going to go away. That's not a very attractive value proposition when you have nine other fingers that are painful, when you have your entire back throbbing, when when everything is painful. And, And that's the challenge for security organizations today. They don't lack problems. They have many problems. They have too many problems. The question is, who can solve a lot of my problems or a big problem in a very easy and simple way? And for us, that required becoming a platform very early on. So we pushed the limits of our engineering and we pushed the limits of uh, the boundaries of our product. And we made sure 
that we can bring a, a solution to our customers that is much more than a niche solution, that it's a platform. And even though we don't have everything we want to have today, we have a lot more work to get done and a lot more software to build. We already have enough that customers see us as a platform and they see us as a partner to take care of their entire data security problem and not just of uh, one uh, tiny part of it. Yeah, got it. Okay. And what was that process like going from, you know, a building of a niche solution to building out, you know, what obviously is a lot more time consuming to build, a lot more expensive, requires a lot more people. How did you sort of, uh, you know, bridge that gap? So I think for us, we knew from the get-go that we want to build something big and we knew that customers need solutions that cover a lot of ground. So Mm -hmm. the platform architecture was built into the product from the get-go. We knew we were going to have to build a platform to handle a lot of very different environments, a lot of very different challenges that the customers will have. And even though we didn't flesh it out completely in in the early days, we laid the foundations for that into the into the software and into the into our architecture to yeah. to enable us to do that at the same time everything you build you want to make sure that the customers are actually consuming using getting value from so a lot of times you have to iterate you build a very a very very lean version of the product you take it to the market and you see if the market adopts it right like the only uh, the only stamp the only assurance you get that the, the product that you want to build is meaningful is if customers are willing to pay for it. Uh, that's the only way you actually know that it's a good uh, and valuable product. Right? Yeah. What I think about it, what my product team thinks about it, that's all great. The only thing I care about is what the customers think about it. If they see yeah. it as valuable, then it's worth building. But oftentimes, it's hard to have the conversation with them without being able to give them a prototype or a better version or something that they can actually feel and test and, and play with to get that feedback. Um, oh, and that just sort of sparked another, another question, especially when I'm, I'm talking with, uh, you know, founders with maybe more of a technical background. I'm always curious to understand sort of what it was like securing the first two customers and maybe more generally how it is that you've developed your sales and just customer facing skills. I know it's, it's a big challenge that, uh, a lot of sort of technical founders struggle with as they're getting the business off the ground. So curious to hear what that experience was like for you and, and maybe um, what lessons you could share with, uh, with others who, who, who may struggle with that. Yesterday I was, uh, I was with a, a very big uh, uh, enterprise that we're working with and they're uh, partnering with us now. And what, what I like to do, we had a whole day with them, a workshop in the office, whiteboarding, presentations, leadership, everything. And what I always challenge myself in these, uh, uh, you know, extensive meetings is to try to take out of the entire session, you know, eight hours in the office together, many people, many conversations, to try to find one, two themes that uh, that were very present throughout the entire day, right? And and to focus myself and to focus my team on that. So I think that yesterday it, the the theme was clear as day. the The theme was ROI. 
ROI. How do we show that the investment we've made in this software, this product, in this partnership, has a clear demonstrable business value for our enterprise, for our organization? How do we show that? And I think that that is the heart of sales. Right? There are many techniques. There are many, uh, uh, you know, spices that you can put on uh, on the dish. But at the end of the day, the dish is made up of ROI. What is the value that this software is providing its customers? How can we show that value? How can we measure that value? And how we, can we communicate that value to our peers, our leadership, our stakeholders inside the organization? That's, or at least that's the case for enterprise sales, right? for B2B sales. And I yeah. think that that was, that was the way we, we secured our first customers. We showed clear, demonstrable, unrefutable value. And in security, the, the easiest way to do that is by identifying critical security exposures that the customers were unaware of and helping them remediate them and take care of them before they materialize. And if those exposures are meaningful enough, and sadly, in the, in the realm of data security and in the realm of data sprawl, there are many issues for every organization and there are many things that need to be taken care of. And if you can show them that very easily, the value is very clear. And that's yeah. just the initial value proposition. The product, the software has many, many more layers and aspects uh, to the value that it provides to customers over time and across the enterprise. But if you can come in and within an hour be able to uh, materially improve the organization's security posture, from uh, before they, uh, they they tried you out, then uh, then you have a shot. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because you know when I've talked about this with other you know CISOs with other security uh, sort of vendor leaders, measuring the value of security can often be not just you know difficult to analyze, but kind of abstract, right? It, it's it's risk reduction, it's time saved, and um, it, it's harder to measure than adding business value um, or adding more revenue or cutting costs, right? And in some cases, right? And depending on the specific product, maybe there's there's a way to say we can do something cheaper than whoever we're replacing. But um, that does spark another question. I know something we, we talked about when we met the other day was how it is that information security can enable the business. And it's obviously been such a massive buzzword for the last few years. Um, but something I spend a lot of time talking about when I, I chat with CISOs and, and security execs like yourself is how can security and business teams sort of better align themselves so that security is actually supporting and in some cases driving uh, the enablement of the actual business. So I'd love to know just sort of how you think about that, maybe what you've seen from your customers um, and where you see that going as well. So I think that's a extremely important topic for every CISO today. Yeah. How do we move from that uh, department of no to a position where we are business stakeholder in the company? And I have two insights, uh, two general insights about it, and I can share a bit about how Sayera is helping customers uh, to do that. The general insights, first of all, take responsibility. Uh, businesses, like every business, uh, 
people who make an impact are people who take ownership, take responsibility. Uh, if the CISO uh, is deflecting, the CISO chooses not to take responsibility of anything that is not forced on them uh, because their budget is limited, because uh, they, they have many reasons to do that. Uh, then the impact is usually uh, correlative to that. If you take yeah. more responsibility, if you take ownership of more, you become more. And I think that that's the first uh, tip, the first uh, thing that I'm seeing in, in the industry. I'm seeing it on the ground. I'm seeing CISOs who take responsibility for more become the CIOs and then the CTOs. Like they take leadership. They start to lead the company. The second thing is to really uh, look at our job as uh, not to block or uh, stop things from happening, but to find the right ways to identify risk while we're letting things happen and remediate that risk and mitigate that risk, but not to be in the position of saying no, but to be in the, in the position of saying how. And the more we can bring value to that conversation with our, with our business partners, the better position we're in. What do I mean by that? So let's give an example from the data security space. Many organizations, if you ask them, do you know where your data is, where your sensitive data is across the enterprise? The answer is, we don't really know, but what we're doing is we're, we're surveying the application owners. Big enterprises can have hundreds, sometimes thousands of applications. We're surveying the application owners about what data is being collected in their applications. Well, application owners don't know. If they know, they're not necessarily going to tell the security team. Uh, and the whole process is point in time. It's manual. It's prone to mistakes and, uh, and errors. And it's not uh, operational in any way. Right? You, you can't build an operational data security program on top of surveys. You can only build a reporting scheme. Uh, now, this is one way. Right? Now, if you move to DSPM, if you move to technology as, a, as an enabler, and you have an automated data discovery and classification solution that inventories all of the data across all of your applications and all of your environments in a way that is continuous. Now, not only do you not need to ask that question of the application owner, but you can actually tell the application owner what they have, how much yeah. they have, if it's kept secure, compliant, are there any gaps that we need to take care of? You become a proactive partner in that conversation. You have value to provide the application owners, the line managers, about what is happening in their business that they're looking to consume. And, and I think that that's a, an example for the types of changes we're seeing CISOs make in order to become a business stakeholder and not a, a business blocker. What value can I give you, the business? How can I help you using my technology, using my expertise, using my perspective on the enterprise and, and what, we can, what we can provide how can we leverage that to support and accelerate the initiatives that are happening on the business side? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was actually, reminds me of a, a story. It was earlier this week, I was talking with a, a customer of mine. It's a, it's a large uh, university hospital system here in the States. And they had kind of a similar issue where it was um, as part of the, the university hospital, they've got a, a massive research arm. And the researchers, whenever they get a grant to do uh, research on a particular project, will spin up 15 or 20 servers where they store 
the usually very sensitive personal information that they're doing to research. And it carries, you know, it's, it's usually health information, some sort of educational information, obviously PII as well. And it was this kind of game of whack-a-mole that the security team was constant, constantly play, playing where it was, you know, researchers would get a grant, they'd spin up a little IT environment for themselves with all this sensitive information that had zero protection on it. And security had to find a way to find them, notify them of the risk that they were carrying and help them to secure it. So um, yeah. that's interesting. And yeah. And we're seeing that in different shapes and formats with our customers. And I think that here the, the approach is, let's say the, the legacy approach of DLP would be to implement some solution that will block data from moving and being uh, extracted from that environment. Well, the researchers are never going to go for that. Right? Yeah. The approach of DSPM is, hey, you're not going to notice we're even here. It's completely seamless. It's running in the background. If somebody messes up and creates a, a, a very risky exposure, we'll alert you about it and let's take care of that. And that you would also want to take care of, right? Like it's not like the professors and the researchers want to expose the data. They're just yeah. not willing to be hindered in the process of doing the research in order to protect it. Right. If you can find that balance of, I'm not going to stop you from doing anything, but I will let you know when something bad is happening so you can take action. I think that that's a balance that the business can live with. Oh, and at the same time, you're also getting an inventory of all the data you're collecting in that environment that you can use. And that's a pretty valuable value proposition. Yeah. You mentioned DLP. I'm curious just to hear sort of your broad like point of view on, on competition um, and just like how you maybe view competition in the market and just sort of see Sierra's space in it. So lately, the DSPM space is uh, hot, hot, hot. And it seems like everybody wants to compete with us. And, and we're welcoming all players, uh, all players aboard. I think that this is a huge uh, challenge that enterprises are facing. And I'm very happy to see uh, some of the bigger players in security leaning into this space and starting to uh, build their offerings in this space. We're seeing acquisitions. We're seeing uh, engineering efforts of the big players being diverted into DSPM. And I think that this would really help accelerate the industry uh, transformation and, and put the emphasis on data and data security where it should be. So as far as competition goes, you just pick one. Everybody, everybody seems to be one to play, to be, to be playing. Yeah. Uh, I think that our vision, Sierra's vision, is very unique. We're not going after the DSPM space. We're going after the data security space, and we want to become the central operational data security platform for enterprises to allow enterprises to secure data end-to-end -end across the enterprise to operationalize data security in their SOC, in their operational systems, and to be able to really protect data across the enterprise throughout. DSPM is a great place to start. And we've started there, we're starting there, and we deliver the most value to our customers there. But it's not the place where we're going to end. We're going to uh, create more and more capabilities and more and more integrations in order to really be able to bring in all parts uh, of the, the enterprise ecosystem into the Sierra platform and allow uh, enterprises to build their data security policy in one place 
to manage their data security incidents in one place, to react to them, to respond, to investigate, and to do that with full data context and data awareness, with the actual ability to understand through machine learning and AI classification, what is the data we're looking at? Yeah. That is the, the goal, the vision that we're working towards. And I think that it sets us apart in the market. And we, we know that our customers definitely think so. What do you see as the role generative AI will play? And we could probably do a whole episode just on this topic, but bear with me for, <laughs> for 20 more minutes. Um, what do you see as the role, like not just within Sierra, I'd, I'd love to hear just how you're using it or how you intend to incorporate it into the product and customer experience, but just more, more broadly within data security, how will it impact large enterprise security teams, both, both positively and negatively? I think generative AI is a huge positive for all of us. I think that it's going to usher in a, another age of innovation. I think that it's exciting. It's interesting. And I think that it's, it has a huge promise uh, for the security industry and for many other industries around us. I also think that it's inevitable. So trying to uh, reject it, uh, fight it, uh, deny it, I don't think that can last very long. Uh, for us at Sayera, generative AI, LLMs have been a part of our ability to deliver cutting-edge, best-of-breed data classification. So technologically, it's allowed us to do more. It's allowed us to solve hard problems that weren't uh, solvable even just five years ago. Uh, and it, it allowed us to leapfrog other players in the data classification space and to bring something to market that is better, more accurate, more contextualized, more meaningful to our customers. I think that as an enterprise challenge, CISOs are looking for ways to differentiate between proprietary crown jewel data, data that should not, under any circumstances, be extracted into different uh, uh, worldwide web AI services. Uh, this is the classic data loss prevention problem that we've been dealing with for 15 years. It's just been reinvigorated by this new challenge. And it shows that the real challenge is not how to block the data. That's pretty easy. The real challenge is how to identify the data, how to really be able to put our finger on the sensitive data that we don't want extracted from our environment. And to use just one classic example, you have a group of coders, software developers, that are using some uh, generative AI service to customize their code, to enhance their code, to write the code for them. All is well. All is well until they start pasting AWS tokens and secrets, passwords, credentials into that system. That's not good. We don't want that and we, we don't want to allow that and we don't want them to continue to do that. I think that the way we're going to do data security in the future is by being able to identify those behaviors and educate and reach out to those developers and tell them, hey guys, we see that you're extracting a code into this system. We see that because we're able to identify the code, we're able to identify the movement, we're able to bring our entire security ecosystem stack to operate together. That's great, but we don't want you pasting AWS tokens in there like we see that you've been doing for the last two weeks. So 
there are two options. Either you use this module in order to uh, extract the tokens from the code before you send the, the code up to the cloud, before you send the, the code up to the web. Or we have another copy of this AI service internally within the enterprise where you can send the code as is. We've put that there especially for you because we know that there are 50 of you using the service and uh, we want you to get the full capabilities. We just don't want you to expose the enterprise. Sure. Right. So I think that the way data security, operational data security is going to look, is not about finding that email with a sensitive attachment that shouldn't have been sent. It's about being able to identify behaviors, extraction of data that is systematic, and really to course correct. And some of that course correction is technical. Much of it is awareness, education, alternatives, uh, communication. Yeah. I'm curious also to sort of tie this back to what you said at the beginning of the call of cyber being in the early innings or, you know, there being still a lot of growth left in the, the cybersecurity market. So, you know, as you look into your crystal ball over the next few years, how do you see or, or where do you see AI just impacting the broader security market? I think we're all excited about the opportunity to support our SOC analysts and SOC operators with AI, the ability to filter through large amounts of data uh, to identify the signal within the noise. I think that everybody is very excited about those opportunities. I think they're also quite early. Uh, I think the first stage will be to see AI come into play in very specific use cases, mm -hmm. doing something very specific. And it will still take some time before we see it mature and uh, become, you know, an enhancer uh, to, to an operator's uh, job. Uh, so it's a journey we're on, but I think we're already seeing great rewards come out of it. Yeah. What else makes you say that there's still a lot of growth left in, in cyber? I think that cyber is tied to technology. To IT. Now, there's a, an amazing TED talk that I really recommend that talks about the fact that when people look 10 years back, they say, oh, so much has changed. My life is not the same. My friends are not the same. My job is not the same. So much change. But when they look into the future 10 years, they say, oh, no, everything's going to stay just about the same. Well, that's wrong. Like, that is just playing out wrong. The next 10 years are going to show, are going to bring more change than the last 10 years. That's almost a fact. So I think that for all of us, you know, we live our day to day. We don't expect the world to be rev revolutionized tomorrow, but it will, yeah. right? And it's, it's, I don't know, less than 20 years that we all have a smartphone in our uh, pocket. We can't imagine our lives without it. Uh, the next 10 years are going to bring changes that are just as dramatic, if not more. And uh, I think that cybersecurity will always have to keep up with that, will always have to be ahead of the curve. And, uh, and I think that that's why this market is going to continue to grow, to continue to expand. And that's also why I think that despite uh, what uh, uh, some players like uh, Palo Alto Networks would like to convince you, that uh, or Microsoft would like to convince you that you can buy a platform, a suite, and your cybersecurity challenges uh, will be solved. I think that organizations that will not continue to invest in best-of-breed uh, cybersecurity products and solutions 
will find themselves laggards, will find themselves behind the curve because innovation and, uh, and cutting edge technology, they do not come out of these suites. They come out of dedication to a specific problem that is important enough to be solved by harnessing a lot of intelligence, a lot of expertise, and a lot of hard work to solving those specific challenges. And, and that's why I feel confident that we're going to continue to see startups in the cybersecurity space, and they're going to be able to go to market, and they're going to be able to solve problems that Microsoft might tell you they solve, but would actually take them five years to get to. If you have five years, great, but you're not going to have that time because we're working in a very competitive market, competitive with the threat actors. They're not going to wait. They're not going to wait for Microsoft to release the appropriate module. They're going to be ahead of the curve and they're going to be attacking. So I think that cybersecurity will stay a very fresh market, will stay a very invigorated market, and will continue to grow and innovate and change. As our world, as the world changes all, all around us all the time. Yeah. Great. Well, Yotam, I'd love to pivot into the rapid fire round. Um, it's how we wrap up every interview. And basic premise is I ask a bunch of quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? No. Cool. All right. If um, you could go back in time and start a cybersecurity company that wasn't solving the problems that Sierra is solving, right? It wasn't a data security company. What would you have started? Wow. That's an incredible question. <laughs> uh, if I would have gone back in time, I think I would have looked at SOAR, at security or orchestration, uh, correlation, uh, automation systems for security operations. I think that the... There's been a huge uh, advancement there, but there's still so much to, to be done and so much value to unlock for customers. Yeah, cool. If you could change one thing about the security industry, what would it be? If I don't know about it, uh, I don't have to do anything about it. <laughs> I think that, uh, that sentiment that if I know about a problem, then now I'm accountable for the problem. And if I don't know, I'm not accountable, which yeah. is BS. Yeah, I agree with you there for sure. What's your favorite book? Oh, I have a lot of favorite books. You can give but, me like uh, a top, top three, top five, if, if you have a few. Yeah. So let's go for different styles, maybe. So Ender's Game is yeah. uh, is a le- legendary legendary book uh, that I love uh, very much. The Power of Now is an amazing book uh, about how to live. Yeah. Top two. Top two. Great. Uh, you mentioned earlier in in the conversation uh, having a young son, young son. Um, so I'm going to ask for some help. My wife and I are expecting our first kid early next year. Um, what is the best piece of parenting advice that you got or have learned? It's, it's primarily for the early stages, right? Like, but in the early days, the best piece of advice is that everything changes all the time. <laughs> all the time. Like before, before you get used to anything, bad or good, it's going to change. 
Yeah. Uh, so in, in the dark moments when you feel like you will never sleep again, it will change on its own. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> Just keep going. It, it will solve itself out. Got it. All right. So stay on my toes. I'm ready. <laughs> cool. And uh, last one, if you could go back in time and uh, get a drink with your 20 year old self, what advice would you give him? I would tell him to be very aware that everything is once in a lifetime. Hmm. I think that that is a realization that I only got to in my thirties and I wish I had in my twenties. Yeah. And the experiences that you go through, the interactions that you have with your family, with your friends, with your peers, everything is once in a lifetime. And if you, if you look at it that way, if you savor it that way, I think uh, the world becomes a lot sweeter. Yeah. Love it. Well, Yotem, this has been a lot of fun. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time and uh, it was great to meet you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for having me.